News of divine judgment is never pleasing to hear. In the prophet Jeremiah's day, speaking this message cost him some significant time in a cistern, or what we know as a pit. This raises the question, how much are we willing to suffer for the sake of staying true to God's message? Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. Today we continue our study in the book of Jeremiah by looking at the cost of being faithful to God's message in time of great sinfulness. Well, Phil, we meet somebody new in today's lesson, Evid Melek. Could you tell us a little bit about him? Sure, Mark. You know, he's one of the great, small, and often forgotten characters of the Bible. It's interesting, Evid Melek actually isn't even really a name. It just means servant of the king, and that's what he was. Uh, here's a man who was a foreigner, uh, presumably a black man because he was from Ethiopia. He was a eunuch. I mean, here was somebody who, from the standpoint of that society, really didn't count for anything. He was just a slave in the house of the king, and yet he does a great thing in this passage on his own initiative, a great danger to himself. He goes and he rescues Jeremiah from the bottom of a pit. Well, then uh, both Jeremiah and Ebed Melech took significant chances in standing against great odds for the sake of being truthful to God and his word. So how would they be an example for Christians today? Well, this story today, Mark, really is about suffering and deliverance. In a way, it's kind of a picture of the gospel, because here you have God's servant, Jeremiah, put into the ground, and yet, by the grace of God, raised back up again. I mean, it's almost like a little parable of what happens on Easter Sunday, isn't it? The Savior put in the ground and raised again by the mercy and grace of God. And that's the story we see today. And Evan Melek and Jeremiah both have a part in that because they are both faithful to God, even in the face of death. And they are pointing us to our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is faithful unto death. And let that be the note of our praise, that we have a Savior who offers us deliverance through his suffering. All right. Thank you, Phil. Now, let's open our Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 38 to listen to God's word for us today. Now, Jeremiah 38 is not a resurrection passage. It's true that Jeremiah goes in and out of the ground, in and out of the cistern. In fact, John Calvin observed that this cistern was a sort of grave. But Jeremiah's going in and out of the cistern is not presented in the Bible as a type of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is not a resurrection passage. What it is, however, is a prophet passage. It's a story about what happens to a prophet at the hands of ungodly men and about how God rescues his prophet from death and about how salvation comes to all those who trust in the word of the prophet. That's what we've been thinking about this Easter week, about what happened to God's prophet, Jesus Christ, at the hands of ungodly men about how God rescued him from death, and about how salvation comes to all those who trust in him. That's the Easter message, and we find it here in Jeremiah 38. The story goes like this. First, ungodly men reject the prophet's word. If you read chapter 37 of Jeremiah, you can see that some rulers were angry with Jeremiah, and they had him beaten and imprisoned, verse 15, and then later simply confined to the courtyard of the prison. 
They locked Jeremiah up, but they found that they couldn't shut him up. The reason he kept getting into trouble was that he preached fearlessly the word of God. Like Paul, even when he was in chains, Jeremiah preached to everyone who passed through the prison. He only had one sermon, verses 2 and 3. This is what the Lord says, whoever stays in this city will die by the sword, famine, or plague. But whoever goes over to the Babylonians will live. He will escape with his life. He will live. And this is what the Lord says, this city will certainly be handed over to the army of the king of Babylon who will capture it. To understand why that sermon made people so mad, you have to understand how desperate the situation was in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a city under siege. The most powerful army in the world, the Babylonian army, was camped outside its walls, cutting off all supplies. Bread rations were starting to run low. There wasn't any water left in the cisterns, apparently, just brackish mud. Very likely the Babylonians were starting to make attacks on the walls of the city, trying to undermine its towers or knock down its gates with a battering ram. The prophet Ezekiel gave a military briefing about this siege. He wrote, Outside is the sword, inside are plague and famine. Those in the country will die by the sword, and those in the city will be devoured by famine and plague. One way or another, they were doomed. Given that desperate tactical position, you can see why Jeremiah's little sermon might have been bad for morale. He was announcing that victory was impossible. Defeat was inevitable. His message was surrender or die. He was saying that not because the Babylonians were invincible, but because the Lord himself was fighting on Babylon's side. Jeremiah spoke that message on God's behalf, but Shephatiah, Gedaliah, Jehuchel, and Pasher didn't want to hear it. That gang of four, I'm going to call them, Zedekiah's counselors or policy analysts or whatever you want to call them, wanted a message of victory, not a message of defeat. They wanted a message of peace, not a message of ruin. They said to the king, this man should be put to death. He is discouraging the soldiers who are left in the city, as well as all the people, by the things he is saying to them. This man is not seeking the good of these people, but their ruin. That's how the persecution of God's prophet begins, with the rejection of the prophetic word. Jeremiah's enemies were shutting their ears to his life-or-death message. When you listen carefully to what the gang of four were saying, it's hard not to feel at least a little sympathy for them. Jeremiah is discouraging the soldiers. Actually, that word for discouraging means to weaken one's hand. When soldiers heard Jeremiah's message, their hands were falling slack. Their weapons were falling from their hands. They were so discouraged that they could hardly lift a finger to defend Jerusalem. And then notice that little phrase, the soldiers who are left in this city. Apparently Judah had lost a few men. Perhaps some had fallen while they were defending the city walls. Others were slipping out at night by ones and twos going over to surrender to the Babylonians. 
like Jeremiah had actually encouraged them to do back in verse 2. Whoever goes over to the Babylonians will live. You can guess how many deserters there were by King Zedekiah's fear down in verse 19 that the Jews who have gone over to the Babylonians will mistreat him after he is captured. And then notice what kind of hearing Jeremiah seems to be getting. Not only are the soldiers discouraged, but all the people by the things he is saying to them. Jeremiah is confined to the prison courtyard, but the word is getting out. I can imagine the people have been passing his sermon tapes all over the city of Jerusalem. Now, don't you feel at least a little sympathy for Shephatiah and his friends? They're patriots trying to defend their home, but Jeremiah is hurting the war effort with his defeatist attitude. It's no surprise that when they heard what Jeremiah was preaching, they cried, treason! But here's the real question. Is their accusation true? Listen to the charge they level against Jeremiah at the end of verse 4. This man is not seeking the good of these people, but their ruin. Now, is that true? Is Jeremiah a traitor to God's people or not? Is he seeking their ruin or their good? News of divine judgment is always bad news. It's unpleasant to hear. But the only thing that matters is whether that bad news is true. When the bad news is God's news, then we need to hear it. In this case, Jeremiah is no traitor. He is speaking the very words of God. When the prophet of God speaks the judgment of God in the name of God, he is no traitor to the people of God. And not just the judgment of God. In this case, Jeremiah is preaching sweet grace as well as sure judgment. He's telling God's people how they can save themselves. The gang of four are the real traitors. When they reject God's prophet, they are rejecting God himself, setting themselves up as enemies of the living God. That's not courageous. That's foolhardy. What these co-conspirators actually say in verse 4 is that Jeremiah is not seeking the shalom of Judah, the peace of Judah. Now that's interesting because Jeremiah warned about the danger of leaders who say that sort of thing back in chapter 8, verse 11. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Shalom, shalom, they say, when there is no shalom. I suppose that Shephatiah and his friends were liberal theologians. They wanted a God of mercy, but not a God of justice. They wanted a God who gives victory, but not a God who allows suffering. They wanted a father of love, but not a father of discipline. When you try to take God by halves, like that. What you do is destroy the church. The gang of four were willing to sacrifice the very lives of God's people in the name of their half-God of so-called peace. That story is a parable for our own times. We are like Jeremiah to this world. We do not say, there, there, everything will be all right. 
Instead, we say, it's not all right with you until you get right with God. We do not say, peace, peace. Instead, we say, you will be peaceless until you make peace with God. We proclaim God's judgment to this world, speaking out against greed and pride and false worship and sexual immorality and all manner of sins in the name of Christ. And we proclaim God's grace to this world, announcing free pardon from sin in Jesus Christ. How will the world respond to that message? Many will be like Shephatiah and Gedaliah and Jehuchel and Pasher. They will say, what's your problem? You're all a bunch of extremists. You're a menace to society. You can get a glimpse of that attitude in an article about promise keepers in the January issue of Gentleman's Quarterly. And perhaps I should mention that I'm quoting this secondhand. We've talked about promise keepers before and about their call to the men of this country to be faithful to God, faithful to their families, and faithful to the church. GQ is terrified by that call. The magazine compares Bill McCartney to Adolf Hitler, describing him as a raving lunatic and a lop-eyed loon. It also likens evangelical Christians to Islamic terrorists. Such words are a warning to us, I think, of persecution that may come, but they should not surprise us. God's truth sounds dangerous to the world. Even when Jesus came preaching repentance in the kingdom of God, he was rejected, considered a threat to social order. Ungodly men reject the prophet's word. And then they want to put God's prophet to death. That's how the story goes. That's what the gang of four wanted to do with Jeremiah. They didn't like the message, so they wanted to kill the messenger. They didn't like all the barking. So they wanted to shoot the watchdog. There's only one thing to do with traitors, they told Zedekiah. This man should be put to death. You can see from King Zedekiah's response in verse 5 that he was a coward, a slave to political pressure. In his commentary on Jeremiah, John Guest observes that there are three kinds of people. Those who make things happen, those who let things happen, and those who say, what happened? Here, Zedekiah is letting things happen, and by the end of the chapter, he'll be asking, what happened? He seems to have been an alumnus of the same school of politics that Pontius Pilate later attended. He is in your hands, King Zedekiah answered. The king can do nothing to oppose you. My hands are tied. I'm not going to stop you. That's what Pilate said. When the leaders of the Jews brought Jesus before him and demanded his execution, Pilate took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. When wicked men conspire to murder God's prophets, the rulers of this world will not stop them. Now, the gang of four were conspiring to murder God's prophet, but they didn't want his blood on their hands either. So they arranged for a bloodless execution. They took Jeremiah and put him into the cistern of Malchiah, the king's son, which was in the courtyard of the guard. 
They lowered Jeremiah by ropes into the cistern. It had no water in it, only mud, and Jeremiah sank down into the mud. A cistern, of course, is an underground cavity for storing rainwater. The cisterns of Jeremiah's day were usually bottle-shaped with a narrow opening at the top and then a large round cavern underneath. They were often 15 feet deep or more. You can tell that this cistern was a deep one because Jeremiah needed to be lowered into it by ropes. There wasn't any water in that cistern, only mud, and Jeremiah was stuck in it. There is a strong connection between this experience of Jeremiah and the experience of the Messiah in Psalm 69. Listen how appropriate these words would sound from the lips of Jeremiah. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. Rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me from the deep waters. Do not let the floodwaters engulf me or the depths swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. It is right for us to see this connection between Jeremiah and the Messiah. The experiences of God's prophet Jeremiah point forward to the sufferings of God's prophet Jesus Christ. They remind us that he too was a prophet put to death by ungodly men. F.B. Meyer writes, Jeremiah has always a fascination to Christian hearts because of the close similarity that exists between his life and that of Jesus Christ. Each of them was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Each came to his own, and his own received him not. Each passed through hours of rejection, desolation, and forsakenness. And in Jeremiah we may see, beaten out into detail, experiences which, in our Lord, are but lightly touched on by the evangelists. The New Testament writers often observe how the treatment Jesus received from the scribes and Pharisees was the fulfillment of the treatment God's prophets received before him. Remember what Stephen said to the Sanhedrin in Acts 7, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. That's a description of the leaders who put Jesus Christ to death. It's also an apt description of the gang of four. They closed their hearts and their ears to the word of God, and then they persecuted God's prophet Jeremiah, even to the brink of death. To the brink of death but not to death. Because although ungodly men seek to kill God's prophet, God himself delivers his prophet from death. That's part of the story too. Last week we saw that when God called Jeremiah, he told him not to be afraid. He promised to rescue him. We wondered then what enemies Jeremiah would have to be afraid of what places he would have to go with God to, what dangers he would have to be rescued from. Now we know. As someone was saying to me this week, Jeremiah, the one prophet I would not want to be. Now he had gone out of the prison and into the cistern. He had reached rock bottom, 
in his ministry, or at least sludge bottom. When Jeremiah answered God's call, he was agreeing, although he didn't know it then, he was agreeing to stand up to his thighs in a pile of mud in a hole in the ground, waiting to die. That is a way of making you think twice about answering God's call. But in that place and in all places, God was faithful to his prophet. Even in the cistern, he was not to be afraid because God was with him there. Even from the mud, he would be rescued because God had promised to rescue him. God delivered his prophet from death as he promised to do. Jeremiah could testify with the psalmist, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. Jesus Christ can give that same testimony. He too waited patiently for the Lord. He too cried out to God, asking his Father to receive his Spirit. He too was rescued from the pit. More than that, Jesus Christ triumphed over the grave, for he was raised up from the dead. All who trust in Christ can share in that same victory. How? By faith. We learn that from the example of Evid Melech right here in Jeremiah 38. God delivers everyone who trusts in him. Now, Evid Melech was a nobody. He was a Cushite to begin with. Cushites were Gentiles, black Africans from Ethiopia or Sudan, very likely. So Evid Melech was an alien in Judah. Plus, he was a eunuch in the royal palace. We don't know what his capacity was in the palace, but he was a slave and very likely an emasculated slave at that. We probably don't even know his name. Evid Melech just means servant of the king. That's not much of a name. Even if that was his proper name, it shows that he had no identity of his own, but his status as a human being was completely defined by his relationship to his owner. Within the context of Hebrew culture, Evid Melech counted for nothing. He was nameless. He was alienated from God's people by his ethnicity. He was banned from God's temple by his deformity. But Evid Melech did count because he counted to God. Remember that Jeremiah was called to be a prophet to the nations. Well, Evid Melech was part of the fruit of that ministry. Cushite though he was, he heard the word of God from Jeremiah and he received it unto salvation. Now see how brave he was. Evid Melech went out of the palace, it says in verse 8. He left his post. That's not a very good career move, especially for a slave. And then he went to see King Zedekiah while the king was sitting in the Benjamin gate. Evid Melech did not speak to the king in some private corner of the palace, but went and confronted him in public while he was conducting the affairs of his state. In front of the whole court, he accused Jeremiah's accusers. My lord, the king, these men have acted wickedly in all they have done to Jeremiah the prophet. 
They have thrown him into a cistern where he will starve to death when there is no longer any bread in the city. Evid Melech was God's man. and He was willing to take a stand for God's prophet. He could see that Jeremiah was as good as dead. And yet because he valued the truth of God's word, he valued the life of God's prophet. Even when the whole world seemed to be arrayed against him, he had the courage to do what was right. John Calvin observed that when you compare the courage of Ebed-Melech with the cowardice of Zedekiah, the wonderful constancy and also the singular meekness of God's servant shine forth gloriously. These words from Book 5 of Milton's Paradise Lost might well be applied to Ebed-Melech. Among the faithless, faithful only he. Among innumerable false, unmoved, unshaken, unseduced, unterrified, his loyalty he kept, his love, his zeal. Nor number, nor example with him wrought to swerve from truth or change his constant mind, though single. This single, brave man forced Zedekiah's hand. Zedekiah had washed his hands of the whole affair, but now it was back in his hands. Ebed-Melech had, in effect, exposed cistern gate on the floor of the Senate, and the king could no longer plead ignorance. He was compelled to take responsibility for what was happening to the Lord's prophet. And so, in typical fashion, Zedekiah changed his mind. He ordered Jeremiah to be rescued from the cistern. He gave Ebed-Melech 30 men to carry out that order. That so many men were needed for protection, I think, shows what a great risk Ebed-Melech took on behalf of the Lord's prophet. God did not forget that courage. If you turn ahead to chapter 39 of Jeremiah, verse 15, you can see that Ebed-Melech's faith was saving faith. While Jeremiah had been confined in the courtyard of the guard, the word of the Lord came to him, Go and tell Ebed-Melech the Cushite, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, I am about to fulfill my words against this city through disaster, not prosperity. But I will rescue you on that day, declares the Lord. You will not be handed over to those you fear. I will save you. You will not fall by the sword, but will escape with your life because you trust in me, declares the Lord. God delivers all who trust in him. Ebed-Melech, true servant of the king that he was, was saved by faith. Ebed-Melech performed one further act of faith that we ought to notice. Verse 11. Ebed-Melech took the men with him and went to a room under the treasury in the palace. He took some old rags and worn-out clothes from there and let them down with ropes to Jeremiah in the cistern. You can almost see Ebed-Melech doing that. You can almost see him going into the linen closet in the palace, or perhaps the palace lost and found, and rummaging around in all of the old t-shirts and hand towels, picking them up and looking them over and setting them down again until he found the soft rags that he was looking for. He threw them down to Jeremiah and he said, 
Put these old rags and worn-out clothes under your arms to pad the ropes. What a beautiful act of kindness that was. See his great love for the Lord's prophet. It wasn't enough for him simply to save Jeremiah's life. He needed to give honor to Jeremiah by caring for his body. We can hardly think of Evid Melech's example without also thinking of the care that was lavished on the body of Jesus Christ. Frank Crossan has recently written a book in which he argues that the body of Jesus, believe it or not, was eaten by dogs at the foot of the cross. Shame on him. The scripture tells how Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus and how he took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Joseph of Arimathea exercised the same tender care for the body of Jesus that Evid Melech showed for the body of Jeremiah. These men understood that bodies matter. So did the first witnesses of the empty tomb. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. They wanted to care for Jesus' body, but there was no need. God himself had already cared for the body of his son, Jesus Christ. He did not abandon Jesus to the grave. He did not let his Holy One see decay, but he raised him up from the dead, giving him a resurrection body that will endure for all eternity. Jeremiah will receive that same kind of body, and you can have one too. Surely Jeremiah was one of the prophets that the writer of Hebrews had in mind in his great chapter on faith. Hebrews 11, beginning at verse 32. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms. Some faced jeers and flogging while still others were chained and put in prison. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. Well, most of those things were true of Jeremiah. He was flogged and put into prison. He was persecuted and mistreated. He was confined to a hole in the ground. And then listen to this. These prophets were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. God planned something better? Yes. The prophets had to wait for Easter Sunday. The prophets had to wait for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Salvation in Jesus Christ, that's better. Resurrection life in Jesus Christ, that's better. Full and final deliverance from sin and death, that's better. The promise of the resurrection of the body, that's better too. And Jeremiah receives all those things as we receive them in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. 
Our Father in heaven, we do thank you that we can see in Jeremiah not just the sufferings of Jeremiah, but also the sufferings of the true prophet Jesus Christ. And we give you praise that you did not abandon his body, but raised it up from the dead, giving to Jesus Christ that new and eternal resurrection body which will last for all eternity. We thank you also for the hope that we might have a body like that body. We ask that you would give us faith like Evid Melek, so that we might trust in you unto salvation. In the name of Christ, amen. You have been listening to Every Last Word, a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, featuring the Bible teaching of Dr. Philip Graham Riken. We appreciate your ongoing support of this broadcast ministry. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades, even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. The Alliance also produces the radio broadcasts The Bible Study Hour, featuring the teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, featuring the Bible teaching of the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. For a full list of radio stations carrying our programs, please visit our website at www.alliancenet.org. Every last word continues through your generous gifts and financial support. If you would like to see this program continue to benefit others as it has benefited you, please prayerfully consider becoming a friend of the Alliance. For more information or to make a contribution, please contact us by calling toll-free 1-800-488-1888. You can also send us a gift by writing to Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to Every Last Word. <laughs>